0: Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Abigail Amajola. Toby, you are on mute. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. We are working out some technical difficulties. Um, Welcome to November 4th. Um, Our show is about the day after the presidential election, the day after Donald Trump is soundly defeated. It's our hope um, that, you know, on this day, uh, much of America um, will focus on not only how to rebuild. And repair um, what he has done, but also reimagine the country. Um, and so we've done several of these episodes already. We focus usually on one topic, and um, this topic today that we're going to talk about is um, our challenges about um, related to climate change. Um, how much damage damage has Donald Trump done? Um, with his climate denial administration, what can be repaired and what might we have lost as opportunities to address the climate crisis. Toby, you are still on mute. Um, So let's see, Toby, if you scroll, on your image, let's see. I'm gonna see if I can put you.
1: No, am I unmuted? You
0: are perfect. Yes, That's okay. oh, great. Sorry about that. No worries. Um, so, Toby, can you um, talk to us about the types of guests we have today?
1: Yes. So, we're we're every uh, every uh, uh, show we look at one topic that should be a central point of discussion on November fourth, the day after the election. Uh, We looked uh, in in past shows at uh, the corruption of the Justice Department and the trampling on the rule of law with uh, Congressman Steve Cohen, who's chairman of the uh, uh, Constitution Subcommittee of Judiciary and a leader of common cause. Um, We've looked at what happens if Trump doesn't leave uh, with the author of a book called Will He Go? Uh, This is really uh, perhaps the most important topic of all, however, and that's climate and climate change and how much time we may have lost uh with uh, the the trump uh, carnage and damage to the environment and the trashing of science and so forth. So we're lucky to have two really great guests today. One is a leader a, cl- a climate activist with a sister organization of 350.org called 350 Action uh and the other is a a former mayor of the biggest city in his in his state in Connecticut um and also more importantly maybe the Chairman of the Climate and Jobs Task Force with the U.S. Conference of Mayors. So uh, Abby, you might wanna introduce our guests and we'll get rolling.
0: Yeah, so and that's Natalie Mbain. Um She's the Policy Director at 350 Action and they are focused on civic engagement and electing climate champions. Welcome, Natalie. And Bill Finch is the former mayor of Bridgeport, Connecticut. He held office from 2007 to 2015. Welcome, Bill. So I'm going to start off by asking Natalie our first question. So we're going to assume, and this show assumes, right, that um, Donald Trump will be soundly de- uh, defeated on November 3rd, right? And so we're re- reimagining the day after. Um, Thinking about your priority list, if you will, um, what, what would you, you um, place as first, second, and third as it relates to um, policies that address climate
2: change and undo the damage that has been done? Definitely. Thanks so much for having me here today. So uh, assuming that uh, that we, you know, of course, defeat Donald Trump in November, which is definitely our hope here at 350 Action. Um, 350 Action is our C4 arm of, of our other organization, 350.org. And so here at 350 Action, we are definitely working towards that. So one of the first things we would really like the new administration to do is, of course, reverse the damage that this current administration has done. Everything from rolling back uh, protections um, on the National Environmental Policy Act, also known as NEPA, everything from our CAFE standards, which is our fuel efficiency standards for our cars, um, the both the Bureau of Land Management and EPA methane rules, those were both under attack. The Clean Power Plan um, that he, you know, was starting to be implemented under the Obama administration, he swiftly reversed so there's a long list of damage that the current that the current administration has done to our previous well protected laws so that would be the first step After that, I mean, just to kind of start with that, is moving forward to be much more aggressive. And so I know that uh, Vice President Biden has come out with a really great list, actually. It's nine key elements of Joe Biden's plan for a clean energy revolution. And even on this list, he actually lists a lot of things just that I've named that he wants to reverse. Um, Another part, and this was actually part of the campaign as well, is to stop new leases of oil and gas development on public lands, and this has been debated and talked about for a while now, since the keep it in the ground bill came out in 2015 from Senator Merkley. And so this has been, uh, went from being a bill from five years ago to now really being a standard campaign Mm -hmm. promise for a lot of the democratic candidates that ran this year. So we're really excited to see that. So I think those are one, some of the proactive things that he can do. Also starting to really unveil his plan for investment in a just transition for clean energy and how we're actually going to reduce our pollution as well as what we would really love to see is stopping the federal permitting of new fossil fuel infrastructure. Um, if we are serious about getting to net zero admissions as well as doing what the IPCC says, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says is necessary in the next nine years to avoid the worst effects of climate change. We can't still be building pipelines that are designed to last for the next 50 or 60 years. We can't lock ourselves in to this infrastructure that disrupts our land, water, everything, climate, And then say that we're actually serious about climate change. It doesn't go together. And also it wastes billions of dollars. Why would you want to have stranded assets that are are not going to be held soon? Oh, sorry, there's a little echo there. And so overall, that would be our next step is put it out there right there through executive order that you're no longer going to give federal permits that are necessary for especially for like interstate, um, you know, fossil fuel infrastructure, as well as just other states, things like gas plants, export facilities, things like that. So those would be our ideal kind of top things that we'd like him to do within the first 100 days for
1: sure. What's the, uh, Natalie, can I ask you uh, just to follow up on that? um, How deep into the federal bureaucracy over the past four years has the Trump administration been able to place um, anti-science people who are going to be and and have and have you discovered the civil service jobs even though they were political appointees i mean what's it going to take to weed out the the anti client uh, anti climate anti science crowd from all these different agencies
2: Interesting that, you know, that is that is kind of tough because a lot of times these agencies um, are career um, career point, you know, career people that are there from different administrations. But of course, you can also place in some. I think that honestly, if there is a political appointment that has been in there from the Trump administration, it would be up to the new Biden administration to see who they feel like. Can really stay and who's actually doing their job and who really was just there to implement the you know the policies of the president yeah. to deny science. Um, overall, I don't think it would be too much of an issue because there is usually a big you know flow of people in and out of Washington every election every time right. there's a new administration. So overall, I think they would probably replace the top positions for sure. Um, yeah. And then the smaller, more career positions are usually people who are just kind of there as their regular federal employees that I don't think would be too much of an issue.
1: Right. I'm. I was worried. I'm. I'm worried more about what we've seen in the past, where uh, a, a departing administration in the last, uh, you know, six months places a whole bunch of people, and then there's a process through which they actually get them to be transformed from political appointees to civil service and career. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, then the new Secretary of Interior or, or the Secretary of uh, Energy or or the head of EPA is stuck with them. You know. I maybe, maybe it's not as serious a problem as I'm imagining, but it seems like uh, a big problem. Just one, one last thing before I go back to Abby. Um, on day one uh, after the inauguration, if there was one thing that you would like Biden to announce, what would it be? Rejoining Paris.
2: I would say, who? I would have to be a lot of things. Um, I feel like. I feel like you know this is exactly what president trump did in his first day he just started in his first week started selling signing executive order after executive order i would say that we want him to do everything that he can do immediately with executive order and In fact, on his his list of the nine key elements, um, he actually has a list of things that he would do with executive order on day one, which some of them are things like the, you know, banning new leases of fossil fuels on public lands, which is immediate, because that's just implemented by the Secretary of the Interior. Also, he says in here that he would permanently protect the Arctic Mm -hmm. National Wildlife Refuge, which is a big deal. Uh, People have been trying Mm -hmm. to drill there for over 30 years. And so I think actually from his list here, I would want him to do all of them because it literally is just a signature and they can have them written up, written right. up before. So Good. all of these things he lists, I think, would show us that he's being serious.
1: Bill Finch, what about the cities? Um, and, and, and when you were uh, head of the Climate and Task Force, uh, the, Cl- the Climate and Jobs Task Force for all the U.S. mayors across the country um didn't you do something to try to globalize that didn't you work with cities from uh, other countries as well
3: yeah you know i have to say the u.s congress of mayors has been in the lead on this uh, since day one i mean the mayor's uh, climate protection um, pledge that they took starting in 2005 i think it was first announced in 2007 had 1100 mayors sign on to this led by greg nichols the famous mayor of seattle who got it all started um you know mayors have so much that they can do. And Mike Bloomberg's working with the 60 uh, largest cities. Uh, but but you know, they used to say uh, about Bridgeport that uh, uh, after, uh, after Vaudeville, everything's Bridgeport, right? After New York City, everything's Bridgeport. There's thousands of cities like Bridgeport around the world and our carbon impact and the impact on the environment from within our boundaries is great. Uh, and no one can act as quickly uh, as mayors can sometimes they don't have as many resources but they have a lot of resources and they also are generally not running against each other so they like to steal each other's ideas and replicate quickly so i think one of the messages i have on this show toby as in answer to your question is we have underutilized mayors mayors have been the first responders on climate since day one and there's so much they can do and we look just at Bridgeport and what we did um, ICLE, uh studied our climate impact of the city's activities. It was only 4% of the overall total. So when we did our Be Green 2020 sustainability plan, which I would urge every city to do, and just replicate what Bridgeport and New York City did uh, with Plan YC and Be Green 2020, um, we found that we had to get the business community involved. So we formed a partnership with the Chamber of Commerce, which was, you know, everybody thinks the chamber is your enemy. The chamber is not your enemy because they see jobs and reduced expenses and greater efficiencies in the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. So we raised several hundred thousand dollars over several years, augmented the city staff, created a sustainability director, and had a plan of action of 65 policies, which we implemented all of them. Uh, Actually, we we didn't implement one, that's another story. But uh, we reduced the greenhouse gas emissions within the city of Bridgeport's boundaries, which is, this is pretty amazing, by 5%. We had the equivalent of 20,000 homes on renewable energy. That's a significant percentage of Bridgeport's number of homes. So if Bridgeport can do it, any city could do it because we're a <laughs> broke city uh, in the northeast <laughs> with you know lots of challenges. But we created about a billion dollars, over a billion dollars of investment in eight years. Uh, the thing that I like to focus on is a triple bottom line. We shouldn't do anything that doesn't reduce the city's expense create jobs in the inner city, jobs that can't be exported overseas and reduce our impact on the climate with greenhouse gas and, uh, emissions. So if you do a, a policy that has all of those, everybody, uh, what did Kennedy say that success has uh, got a million fathers and failure is an orphan. You have a lot of fathers who want to take credit for what you can do. Great, Deb? Um,
0: yeah, I'm wondering um, if you could talk a little bit more about um, those, those partnerships that you created with businesses because, you know, I think often we see business, we as in, you know, progressive organizations, progressive organizers and activists do see business as um, a threat to, um, you know, the progress that we can make on, on climate change, on environmental justice, right? And And there is a real concern as well about, you know, how did we get started here? And a lot of Um, activists would say it is because of business practices. It is because of environmental racism. So I'd love to hear, um, you know, how you address that, how you worked with businesses.
3: Well, on on the the last point you made about environmental racism, which is clearly the case, um, we had our environmental justice community front and center in our whole planning of the Mm -hmm. sustainability plan. So we didn't do anything that didn't impact the quality of life. And, you know, one thing that mayors can do is they can talk turkey, right? They Mm -hmm. don't go in and talk about penguins and polar bears and, degrees Celsius and Fahrenheit. They go in and say, Aunt Millie's basement is flooding. Joe doesn't have a job. Mm -hmm. My son's got asthma. We relate it to people where they're at and what their conditions that they're living Mm -hmm. under are. And by doing that, we reached the hearts of people and the minds of people. Uh, We had a hundred kids out every summer in something called the Mayor's Conservation Corps. They taught people how to recycle. They taught people how to work with Posigen to get solar on their roof. Uh, We taught people um, how to use the buses Uh, We we taught every green practice you can imagine with kids from the community, providing them a summer job, Uh, how to get a free tree from the city for your yard so we can sequester carbon. Um, I believe that mayors can do a tremendous amount uh, and they just need to, I think one of the faults of the environmental community worldwide is they haven't reached out to mayors enough. I think Bloomberg's doing a great job uh, with his C40. I just said 60 before it's C40, but beyond the 40 largest cities, What I was explaining with Natalie earlier when we spoke was every time a mayor finds a better way to lend a library book or fill a pothole or create affordable housing or create jobs in the inner city, they're fighting climate change. Because the more dense we live, the shorter the distance to transport ourselves to work, our sewage to the treatment center, our electrons to our cell phone, all those distances require less energy, which means they require less greenhouse gas emissions. So a huge amount of conservation is making cities work and uh, making cities work and and to expand the number of people that live close to one another. Now, COVID has given us some challenges in that regard, but I think it's also showed us how interdependent we are in each other. Can
1: I I ask both of our guests uh, uh, to focus on the morning of November 4th? And you wake up and Trump is defeated and hopefully, he will have been uh, called the winner before we even get two time zones away from the East Coast. But let's just say he wins decisively. It, it's not hard to come up with a whole bunch of things that need to be fixed, repaired, rebuilt, reimagined. Natalie went over a, <clears throat> a good list of them. What, what a, one or two things you think about, light bulb goes on, and you say, you know, this is a really big opportunity right now to move us forward beyond where we would have been. In other words, what, a, what, a, what are the lessons, if any, that have been learned from these monstrous policies that then give us a more, maybe more enlightened citizenry to work with, Natalie?
2: Well, in terms of the lessons learned, I mean, I don't know if everyone has learned them. I don't think that necessarily a lot of times I don't think the the general public is necessarily paying attention to things like the rollbacks of the National Environmental Policy Act or things like that. I think that people see the difference as, as uh, we were talking about it with Bill is that they see the impacts on themselves. And so I think what people have seen just from disastrous policies overall, I mean, look at the state we're in right now with the pandemic. That is something that you cannot deny. You cannot not be affected by it. And the fact that our entire economy is being held hostage right now because of it. And if, like, I mean, all the reports have already said, if every American wore a mask when they went out, we could have this under control in the next one to two months. And that's so simple. That seems like the easiest solution that we could ever do. So I think that the fact that his lack of leadership at the top and questioning the masks and, you know, supporting uh, doctors that aren't really they don't know what they're talking about, You know, you've seen some things he's posted about putting up the uh, statements that are not real, that until we have a leader that actually leads based on science, that actually leads based on what is real, then a lot of the American people are not going to follow through. And so I would say those are the examples of the disastrous policies that I think people are starting to pay attention to. But overall, I don't know if everyone has noticed the different environmental rollbacks, because he's been doing them for the last almost four years and they haven't slowed down at all. I would say that we've learned too, that any policy we create has to be based on the science. It's, it's not, political science does not matter. The only thing that matters is physical science. And yet we keep legislating as if we can make up physics, like we can give our opinion on what's real and think that that's going to make it real. And so my biggest push would be for the next administration to make laws and let you know, to overall have policies based on the physical science of what we need to do.
3: I would say, I would I would say, say that the yeah, president will only be as successful to the extent that he works with mayors. And we've got to remember, Trump just didn't fall out of the sky. He was elected because of fear, racial fear, economic fear, yeah. uh, racial supremacy, misogyny. He, he, he played on everyone's fears, right? And he got there because he played on their fears. We have to play to people's aspirations. And you have to work yeah. with mayors to work to build the foundation that then the states and the national government, you know, the national government hasn't done much of anything to fight climate change. Uh, Thankfully, you know, uh, Al Gore led the effort and President Obama was a courageous leader to get us into the Paris Accord. But the Paris Accord is not enough. We can talk about that uh, at some point in another show, perhaps about how we need more than the Paris Accord. And we're not even in that. So I think we have to remember that Trump just didn't fall out of the sky and we have foundational work that the mayors can be key on. If every mayor had a mayor's conservation corps that went door to door with kids from the community teaching people about how we should relate to nature, we have nature deficit disorder. We don't have people understanding where their food comes from, where their water comes from, where their electrons come from. And as a result of not having that, they don't understand science. And as a result of not understanding science, we get off on these you know, Twitter wars that don't really mean anything. But One thing that uh, I would like to point out is in the Harris, the Biden-Harris, I said Harris-Biden, I'm sorry, (laughs) Biden-Harris, Harris-Biden, Biden-Harris. us how you really feel. Interchangeable. I like it (laughs) Um, The first point is basically the Hippocratic oath, "Do, do no harm. Undo all the harm that Trump did, which is legion. But the second thing he points out, and I just want to read it, is. The legislation that he proposes must require polluters to bear the full cost of carbon pollution they are submitting. So in Connecticut, we were lucky. We had Dodd pushing carbon tax. We had Lieberman pushing cap and trade. And the Bushes supported cap and trade. And then we got off onto this partisan war where we denied science. We got to get back to that. Biden has to reach across the aisle and have this be bipartisan. And mayors can do that because mayors, in some cases, don't even run with a party. So I would say Biden will be successful to the extent he involves mayors and helps build that foundation that we've got to rebuild because we've had four years of saying that the town green sucks and government's ripping you off and those people are the problem. And we've got to get back to joining hands, understanding our role in nature, understanding how we need to relate to our natural environment so that we don't poison our own spaceship. This is a spaceship that we're on, Spaceship Earth. And we don't have the support mechanisms properly. You know, I used to work at, a, I used to run a science museum and we had a room that was just like the Skylab, uh, just like the space station. And in the space station, all these things are replicated in the museum where you monitor the air, you monitor the water, you monitor everyone's health, you monitor everyone's temperature, you monitor everything in this little environment. And you think, well, why are we doing that to our planet? Why aren't we monitoring all the inputs and outputs and making sure? So I think the point I want to make is he has to work with mayors and he has to price carbon. If the environment continues to be a cesspool free uh, to uh, to dumping of climate gases, climate climate changing gases, we'll continue to dump if there's not a price on it. You have to price carbon. Right. So we after- have, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Ab, oh no.
0: So you know this is something I've been wondering since. Donald Trump was elected. But, you know, on November third, even if we elect Biden and Harris, there are still going to be people who supported Donald Trump, who did everything they could to keep him in power. And these are still the people who um, are very susceptible to misinformation, right? And so I'm wondering, like, how do we address that? Like, what messaging are we using? I know, Bill, you started talking about education, but like, these people exist now, right? Um, and it's hard to like penetrate yeah. at this point um, to cut through all of that um, false noise. And so I, I'm just wondering your thoughts on that. And like, what have you all been doing to address that?
3: Well, when we had the Mayor's Conservation Corps and we had kids from the community with a summer job trained on how to explain climate change, how to explain your impact to nature and how to mitigate against that, it worked. We, had, we built new parks and we showed how a water play area and a park We had an eco-technology park where we encouraged green businesses to move in. And then when they moved in, we taught the public why a job creating porous pavement would save them tax revenue. Because the groundwater would be recharged naturally rather than run off into the sewer system where we have to spend tremendous amounts of money and energy taking the clean rainwater out Mm -hmm. of the sewage system. So much of this gets back to fundamental operations of government that mayors know. I know how to take clean rainwater and prevent it from being polluted by sewage and then having to burn fossil fuels to get rid of it. Do you know that by the time I dry out the sewage, it's still 80 percent water? Then I ship it to a burn plant in New Haven and it's burnt and it's still 30 percent water. Why did I get the rainwater in there in the first place? Why am I spending all this fossil fuel? So we've got things that mayors know, but we need to empower them. The greatest thing that Obama did for mayors was the energy uh, efficiency block grant. And unfortunately, they only did it for one year, but mayors reduced their carbon impact tremendously by weatherizing buildings and helping residents weatherize their buildings and making uh, boilers more efficient and all the like things that they did with that money. Um, you need to put that on steroids and get that money into the local government because the, the magnitude of what mayors can do with much less money than the federal and state government is enormous. Mm-hmm.
1: Let, me, uh, let me ask, uh, that's, that's great, Bill. Let me ask uh, Natalie um, uh, what, what might be called a movement question. So I noticed um, uh, on the 350 uh, website, very impressive um, arranging of a series called Solidarity School, I think it, it is, right? Um, and they're on different topics, and it's all very impressive. And then there's one on November 11th that is something about holding politicians accountable, which is sort of right up your alley, I think. Um My view, and this is not based on a huge amount of knowledge, but my relationship with the environmental uh, groups, environmental community over the years, and I do a lot of pro bono work for the big organization. um, How does climate as an issue get to the top of the priority list with all the other stuff that's going on? I'm a newly elected member of Congress on November. I'm a member-elect on November 4th. People are coming at me from all directions. What does the climate movement look like in that, you know, in that on that landscape versus um, more, what, more what more people might consider bread and butter issues, healthcare, education and so forth? And how, how do you get climate to uh, prevail as an issue in that noise that will be going on?
2: Definitely. So, of course, as a newly elected official, everyone wants to meet with them. Everyone wants to talk to them and say, my issue is the most important. My issue is the most important. The thing with climate change is tell me one thing on Earth that climate doesn't affect. Tell me a plant that it doesn't affect, an animal doesn't affect, a human it doesn't affect. It is the only issue that affects every living thing on this planet. So if somebody says, well, I care more about this other thing, you should care about your health. And I care about the air I breathe that affects my health. I care about the asthma that I've had since I was diagnosed at three that has affected my entire life. And so I don't think you can ever separate it. Climate or environment or both is simply your entire world. Everything that you breathe in, everything that you drink, everything that you do. And so it's not a matter of separating the issues. If you're talking about even with education, what are you teaching children? what you teach them, just like what Bill said, you know, if there's not an understanding of where their resources come from or where their food comes from or where their electricity comes from, then you're raising a population that is going to argue if a mask gives you coronavirus. That was happened last <laughs> week. I don't know if anybody saw that. Somebody texted mm-hmm. to me and that was what Representative Gomer was arguing when it was, came out that he had coronavirus. And he argued from one of the fake doctors or so that Trump had tweeted about said something about, you have a mask on and you breathe in your own coronavirus that's already there and it gives it to you. It was like, what? And so if you don't have proper education, you're gonna have people that we can't, we can't even get past the pandemic because people say the mask is dangerous. So it's, it's all connected, you cannot leave one out. And I think that also climate education in schools is very important. There shouldn't be a, a single person that is debating if climate change is happening or if it's real. I mean, I learned the carbon cycle, I'm pretty sure in third grade. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think I could explain it by fourth grade. So why are we still discussing a,
3: a lot of that goes out yeah. the window though, right? And that's why mayors are so critical. Mm-hmm. I could not go to the grocery store. I could not pump gas without somebody asking me something for a favor for a tree limb for a cat, barking <laughs> it, a dog barking. When you were going stuff. out, yeah. When mayors talk to people, they cut through all that noise. They cut through that stuff. And it's not an argument about whether I saw it on Twitter or it's science or it's not science. It's I need help right now. And mayors can, if properly trained, and most of them are, cut through all that noise. You know, if your mayor tells you to get a vaccine, it's the most likely elected official you're going to listen to. Congress members (laughs) go to the grocery store all the time and nobody knows who they are. Senator Gillibrand go down the middle of Main Street and people aren't going to stop her. But if the mayor does, there's going to be people grabbing at your shirt sleeve. So, again, I got to harp on this. Every administration I've ever been involved with does not emphasize mayors. You know, I'm talking to Kevin McCarty at the U.S. Conference of Mayors, and he says mayors are the first responders of climate. We're the ones that have to say it's about your flooded basement. It's about Uncle Joe not having a job. It's not being able to pay your light bill. Your kids got asthma. That's climate change. And if we relate that and we keep it positive, improving the people's quality of life, not saying you're bad, you're doing this. If you don't stop doing this, if you don't stop eating meat, if we start that way, we lose the argument. Because the other side says, Don't listen to them. It's all fake news. Eat your meat.
2: And that's, yeah, that's very important to say that I think it's, of course, how you communicate these issues. I think that, as Bill said, if you are communicating these issues in a way that makes it relate to people's lives, right? And making sure they understand that, you know, climate touches every single part of their lives. And so I think for me, in terms of what is our plan in terms of holding um, elected officials accountable after they win, is we won if we're pushing for an elected official, whether we've endorsed them or whatever their stance is we already kind of know where they're at when they get elected. You know, we're very, we're very much uh, pushing for them to have plans made before as they're running. And once you know where someone's at, say they're elected and they're a champion, for example, Jamal Bauman was recently won his primary, expected to win the general. Um, he was one of our 350 action endorsements as well. If you already know that they're on the path fighting for a Green New Deal, fighting for clean energy for all, fighting for a just transition, then it's not really so much even holding them accountable. It's helping them fulfill what they want to do. It's coming to them in the first month after they've been inaugurated and saying, look, we want to help you. Here are some bills that you can work on. How can we work together? And what I found is half of lobbying isn't really trying to persuade people as much as it is trying to be a resource for them to help them do what they already plan on doing. And that's really what 350 Action does is once we help you, you know, hopefully get elected, our C3 side, 350.org, will also meet with you and say, this is why, how we can work together in the environmental movement. And then for also candidates who get elected who maybe aren't with us on everything, Mm -hmm. It's don't you don't give up on them you don't you can't you still need them there's still a vote that is necessary right. and so meeting with them regularly and pulling them in to show ways that they can still be better and just understanding that this is politics not everyone's going to be with you all the time but as long as you move those who are ready on your side to take action you can actually do enough to to make the big difference and get some laws fast
1: well, well you know one of the things that happens on november 4th is the transition begins right um yeah To what extent are are climate activists being uh, invited uh, to be part of the transition as opposed to standing on the sidelines? Natalie
3: and I are ready to go. Oh, yeah, (laughs) definitely.
2: I think it (laughs) depends on the orgs. You
3: tell Um, the time and place, we'll be there.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think it depends on the orgs, but a lot of organizations are already involved in the campaign in many ways, right? If they have C4 and they can endorse. And then it's sort of more of a seamless transition of, okay, well, let's help really build your cabinet. Let's help you build uh, recommendations for high posts, whether it's EPA administrator, whether it's the head of CEQ, which is the council of environmental quality and all these different positions that a lot of times people do come from the environmental movement. And sometimes they go to the environmental movement once they leave office. There are people I used to uh, meet with at my previous position uh, who were high level people in CEQ, right? This is the legis, which is the executive branches sort of uh, climate arm, right? and when the administration ended, they went right into environmental nonprofits. And that's totally fine. It's because we already know as environmentalists, the laws, we already know what we're pushing for. We already know when uh, the Trump administration and Congress with with their CRA, Congressional Review Act, uh, I'm gonna say, messed up the, um, they went after the BLM methane rules, which that one actually, that vote failed. But the administration later, later took actions against these methane rules that the bomb administration had finalized uh, soon before they left. And we knew that that was going to be a target. So it's not like we didn't know that was going to happen once the administration changed. And so that's really how we do it is I think being a part of the transition of helping provide those resources of expertise so that those positions can be filled with the best people and I expect the same thing to happen after you know in November um, if we have a you know a Biden-Harris one mm-hmm
0: so we have um, a couple of questions coming from the audience right now so I'll ask a few um, and feel free to whoever it makes sense to respond but um, one of those questions is around um, climate change disproportionately impacting indigenous communities, both in the US and around the world. Um, And so how are we ensuring that we are prioritizing these communities um, within the climate change movement moving forward? And I'll say I'm from Louisiana and we are losing our land very, very quickly. Mm -hmm um and we have indigenous communities there that have seen just such a rapid loss of land and and along with that loss of land comes loss of culture and tradition and um and then they have to figure out where to move and the government is not supporting them so how how can we center these voices
2: i'm i would go jump in there i'm really happy you asked that because you're absolutely right and you know climate climate refugees which is exactly what a lot of folks in this you know south louisiana are their land is literally disappearing. And so climate refugees are real, they're all over the world, and they usually impact the most vulnerable populations in, in each country. And we know that for different countries around the world, including our own, some of the most vulnerable populations are our indigenous communities. And so I think for, you know, what 350 Action, 350.org as well, is we work very closely with everything from indigenous environmental network, Standing Rock Zoo Tribe, and really working in partnership. I think what we have to look at it as, you know, colonization didn't end it didn't stop just because okay well now we have this nation state with this title colonization is still occurring when you go into uh, an indigenous community and say you know what we're just going to take your land and build a pipeline through it that's still colonization that's still saying that this other um and that's private companies private companies now mm-hmm. can do that and so and with the consent of the u.s government you know imminent domain all these things so in the end essentially we are still colonizing lands that have been taken a long time ago, but now we're taking them for fossil fuel projects. And so Mm -hmm. I think one of the ways that we prioritize um, indigenous communities is one, working directly with leaders of indigenous communities. There are different environmental organizations and other organizations, but also highlighting the fact that these communities are targeted. It's not by accident. They're not looking for um, typically a white wealthy community to build a pipeline through because they're afraid that there'll be too much pushback, too much political power and that it wouldn't be easy. And so the fact that they're targeting communities that are already the most vulnerable is, the same racism that has always existed, and I think highlighting that and speaking of it, and not thinking that these pipelines are just built because that was the best route—they're built in what they feel like is going to be the easiest route to get what they want—and that is same thing as colonization and racism. And so here, at, you know, 350, and I'm sure many, many other orgs is actually centering the work that is occurring there in those communities that are already being attacked, and same thing with uh, with black and brown communities for pollution. Uh, Climate change and other pollution does not just affect everyone equally. It affects everyone, but it doesn't affect everyone equally. You know, if you think of Cancer Alley, you mentioned Louisiana. Cancer Alley, also known as Death Alley, it's the series of miles of nothing but infrastructure of different types of chemical plants, uh, refineries. And they concentrated it in an area that they thought, well, no one will care about. And I think that you cannot have climate justice and environmental justice without actually knowing what your work is. Your work is racial justice. Because mm-hmm. if it wasn't racism, you would not have the climate crisis. Because you can't have the climate crisis unless you have areas that everybody is comfortable with uh, letting die in order to have these fossil fuel impacts. And so I think that's the main thing is centering your work on racial justice. And if you are centering it on racial justice, you will also have environmental justice.
0: Um, so before I go to the next question from um, an audience member, I was wondering, Bill, if you had a response to that, um, any additional yeah. thoughts there? Um,
3: well, when we did Be green 2020, uh, it was basically a three-way partnership between the city, uh, the business community and the, and the citizens. And front and foremost among the citizenry was the environmental justice leaders. Uh, so we, we, have, we, we did that consciously because we know mm-hmm. we have a lot of reparations to, to make mm-hmm. up. And we also know that climate change disproportionately will affect the have-nots, not the haves. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I look out my window here and just up the street is the smallest Indian reservation in the United States. It's a quarter of an acre. The Pagasa mm-hmm. tribe, which I went to school with a couple of kids from the Pagasa tribe. There's only a few of them here. Uh, we have pushed them to a quarter of an acre. They used to own most of the greater Bridgeport area. Um, it's if anybody has any doubt about how racist our ancestors were toward the Native American population, they need to read Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee." We were, wow. we did every bit to, uh, as bad things as the Nazis did. Uh, we did it to people we considered subhuman, and it was a despicable part of our past. And we do have, if anyone has a conscience, they we do have reparations to make. But I would say that, um, you know, nothing. I would like to just. Uh, echo what Natalie said. Nothing we can do can be done uh, without addressing this issue and addressing um, the disproportionate impacts that poor people worldwide. I mean, 80% of the people in Bangladesh uh, living at or near or below the sea level. Imagine what sea level rise is going to do to some of the poorest people on earth in Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. This is um, something we all have to be concerned mm-hmm. about. And I think what COVID did is it taught us that just like a virus uh, this we are all in this together. We can transmit the disease yeah and we're transmitting climate change disease as well. I think one, one of the things that has impressed
1: us about the sort of 350 uh, activities is uh, we've all been involved in the, you know, uh, great groups, uh, EDF, National Resources Defense Council, on more political level, legal conservation voters, but 350 is really, you uh, a great global has a great global perspective and you know th- that obviously why you were able to answer so well uh natalie the question about indigenous uh, uh populations um we we you know we we mentioned paris um uh, sort of uh, fleetingly but in terms of getting our arms around the climate issue before it's too late um how much of your activity is non-U.S. and truly global, would you say?
2: So in 350 as a whole, so for my work, I'm the um, the U.S. policy director, so oh, I, I work oh. on U.S., but as a 350 is a global org, we are located in you know all continents, of course, except Antarctica. So we are all over the world. I think that in terms of our global, I'd have to get the exact numbers of staff, but most of our staff, when I think about our U.S. staff versus in terms of numbers, And our rest of our staff, most of our staff is outside of the US. Um, Just that it's not that we, you know, I think our US programs are likely our biggest programs, but I think most of our staff overall spread out is around the world. And I mean, I think the reason why 350 as it, you know, was created 10 years ago was a global org is because this is a global problem. We can't really say we want to get to 350 parts per million in America. That doesn't work, right? Climate change doesn't center on one place. We have to globally work together to get the 350 parts per million, which is the highest level of carbon in the atmosphere that is safe for human civilization. And right now where it measured, the last time it was checked about not too long ago, less than a year ago was at 415 parts per million. Right. And so it's increasing obviously. And I think that the having the global perspective and being able to work across the world, even as one org, it's really helpful. We even had an all staff meeting today, and it was, you know, people from all over the world. And they have to do it at, they do one at three in the morning, and then they do one at, it was at uh, 10 o'clock or no, 11 o'clock this morning. So to match the time zones. And so we have to you know, make those accommodations. Obviously the global team might be a little tired when they have to do presentations at 3 a.m. for them, but depending on where they're located. Um, and it really helps in that unification, you know, being in the all staff meeting today and seeing my colleagues who you know, most I haven't met because they're all over, uh, but knowing that we're all working together for the same common goal of achieving 350 parts per million. And I think that's really the way to go. I think it's kind of like, of course, start with the country you live in. Right. You have to worry about the you know, the plank in your own eye right before you take the speck out of your neighbor's eye and the U.S. disproportionately pollutes significantly higher. We are at less than five percent of the world population and we produce about 15 percent of global climate emissions. We're punching three times our weight. You know, we're in our different weight class here. And that has been the historic way that it's been for decades and decades and decades. So we have the most work to do because historically we have been the largest polluters. And so I'm happy to be able to of course work as part of the US team because it's my home, but also it is the greatest need in terms of our government that is still debating climate change. Uh, yep. So I think it's always good to start local at home, and then, of course, work with a global perspective.
1: A- Abby's going to wrap us up here in a minute, but uh, just on that note, we had a question earlier that didn't get didn't get uh, to the stage, uh, and it it involved a global. It was a global question with with other leaders, Trump-like leaders. Let's take Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro. You know, I was best, like, as
0: soon as you That's said Trump-like leaders, I was like, of, the, um,
1: yeah, the best and worst example. Who are we going to um, pick? Uh, what do you anticipate? <laughs> Would be will be the impact of a decisive Trump loss on Bolsonaro. My understanding is his popularity is very, very low. Yeah. He's uh he's a a, cli- a a climate denier, science denier like, yeah, like Trump. The South. Yeah. So what he's what's Trump your what's your South. what's your view on that? I mean he would be the most uh notorious, right? Outside I hope the he Would
2: alienate him. I hope he would feel like he has no friends in this world. I hope he would feel like a complete abject failure that he is. I hope he would realize that the whole world is laughing at him and obviously Trump, but now he doesn't even have uh, Trump to rely on of taking most of the laughter of the world. And I hope that it would wake up obviously, you know, people in Brazil to be like, you know what, we tried this experiment, this was terrible, let's not do this again. And like hope America has the same realization very soon. But there's no guarantees, every country, you know, they say all politics are local, right? Uh, I don't think the U.S. elections, I don't think people are thinking about Bolsonaro in the U.S. elections. I think they're just thinking about what's affecting their life, their day to day. And that's expected. So hopefully that would be a tipping point for the world to understand that fascism is not the way to go. You know, that also was tried before and that didn't work well. So let's stop trying it and let's invest in communities and freedom and also obviously a just transition for this world. Thank you both. Abby. Thank you all. Um, that's all the time we have for today.
0: Um, we hope you enjoyed the discussion and we hope you'll continue it with your fellow citizens. Um, and thank you to our guests for joining us. Glad to be here. Um, please keep in touch via Facebook, YouTube, and Thanks. Twitter for news on our upcoming shows. Thanks, everyone. Thank,
2: thank you. you so much for having me.
0: Thanks, we right. appreciate it. Same here.